0: So for the past month, three weeks or month or so, uh, Charlie Faint, the owner of the Havoc Journal, and I have been discussing when we were going to do a episode, an episode of the Weekly Havoc solely dedicated to the issue of China, Uh, the geopolitical implications of its rise, the threats or lack thereof that China may pose to the United States and to the rest of the world. And then discuss all the aspects uh, of the China, uh, of China's relevance right now, uh, whether it was the South China Seas, China's presence in Africa, in Europe, of course, COVID-19, um, all things related to China. And I was looking for a reason to have that episode, and then uh, Havoc Journal writers Matt Trevathan and Christopher Otero got into a little bit of a collegial back and forth on the Havoc Journal closed Facebook page for our writers – And it was a great discussion, and I was really ticked off at both of them that we weren't uh, exploiting the opportunity to have that argument on air. So I said, okay, they've given me the reason to have the China episode and invite both of them on so we can continue what they have been discussing about and discuss all things China-related. Unfortunately, Charlie couldn't make the show, so uh, we'll only have Matt and Chris and I, um, but no Charlie for this one. Unfortunately. But it was great. It was the heart of what this show is about. It was a great roundtable discussion and debate. Uh, one editorial note. Uh, you'll note in the show that Chris Otero, who I love and I'm so appreciative he's on because otherwise, uh, there's nobody to puncture any chance of groupthink that we get. Uh sometimes I I like anybody, I like to have a lot of people on that I agree with, but I love having people on that I disagree with. And Chris is One of the few people I disagree with whose opinion I really respect and who also makes his case, I think, very articulately. Um, But I don't rebut a bunch of the arguments that he made about his theories on COVID-19 and how it emerged. And I didn't uh, address them mostly because I'd already talked about them in the previous COVID-19 episode. So I will put them in the alibis so that when you hear his arguments, if you want to know where I stand or why I think what I think, you'll see them in the alibis uh, if you scroll down wherever you're listening to this podcast, you'll see what my rationale is, but you'll be able to hear what he says. And, uh, I didn't want to interrupt his flow by interjecting stuff that everybody had already heard from me in the past. Anyway, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. I'm really looking forward to any feedback that you guys give us on it. And, uh, can't wait for you guys to listen. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the weekly havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. And this week, I don't have to add a caveat to that. We actually have a returning group of guests that really do embody the roundtable discussion of the week's events and our staff and writers at Havoc Journal. So no caveats. Uh, So I'm very happy because we're right perfectly where our brand should be this week. Matt Trevathan is a Mercer graduate in computer science. He's a father of four. He's a world traveler. He's a photographer. He is also number 204 on Wikipedia's list of prolific inventors. Christopher Otero is a New York native who is an Army brat. He served 22 years in the Army as both an armor and intelligence officer, spent almost all of his career in combat arms and special operations assignments. He now works for New York State. And Chris, are you a volunteer firefighter now? Did that go through?
1: Yep. Just got the uh, call the other day. So, I mean, there's a couple of administrative things that need to happen in the meantime. uh, Medical check, which I'll pass. But, you know, within the next two or three weeks, I will be in a uniform, you know, on my free time.
2: Outstanding. Awesome.
0: Very, very cool. Yeah. So, for the second week in a row, we will have a firefighter on the show. Outstanding. Great, Chris. Good news. Um I'm, I'm informally in my head, I'm calling this episode a tribute to the Mercer Mafia, since Chris and Matt are both Mercer graduates, right? Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Long time ago. <laughs> well, if Charlie were here, then it would really feel like the Mercer Mafia as well. That's the really full Mafia in force yeah. at that point. We, we only have two of the three families on right now. But yes, in, in, that aside, it's two-thirds of the Mercer Mafia is on, and we'll take it. So Charlie and I had talked for a while about doing an episode really on China and its rise, geopolitical rise, the strategic implications of all the moves it was making, the threats or misinterpreted threats that maybe we are getting from China. And obviously, it's a huge topic. And let's stipulate up front, we're not going to be able to do it all justice in a one-hour show. But- at least to be able to get um, a wave tops or better look at many of the facets of what makes China such an intriguing and kind of ubiquitous subject these days, I think would be worthwhile. What specifically triggered my thoughts of why this week, why do we pick this week to actually do China? Uh, two things. First, Catherine Ebon in Vanity Fair had written, I think it probably was about ten days ago now, a uh, real breakthrough article called "The Lab Leak Theory Inside the Fight to Uncover COVID 19s Origins," and it was th- it just uh, stunning, shocking, appalling in many respects. Uh, uh, investigative journalism about uh, essentially an attempt to suppress the lab leak theory, and the while not endorsing it a hundred percent, the certainly. uh, Shedding a lot of light on the effort to make sure that it was never discussed and never uh, given any sort of ratification by the intelligentsia. And that was uh, an incredibly important story that got an awful lot of coverage. So, this is, we're very much a lagging indicator to discuss anything about it right now. But I did want to mention it. And um, that kind of prompted me to think hey, you know, we already had a COVID 19 episode, but maybe we should mine a little bit more on China and then expand that out into a whole bunch of different aspects. And then, of course, uh, Matt, and I. again, I was late to this as uh, as well, but Matt threw out on the uh, Havoc Journal Facebook page. uh, He just was kind of pontificating or or, or speculating off the top of his head about potential lab leaks and and things like that. And uh, he and Chris had a good back and forth, a good collegial back and forth about uh, the ramifications. And I was like, ah, oh, how, how are we not capturing this conversation? Because this would be something that I think people would enjoy to hear, enjoy hearing. So those were kind of the genesis. And again, that's a starting point. That's not an ending point or an all-encompassing left and right limits of what we want to talk about. But that was why we started this. So let me just kick it off and jump right to it. Now, with the benefit of a few more days and with more exposure to the information that has been uncovered. Chris, what do you think now about the lab leak theory? Do you think it's more credible, less credible? Do you think it's irrelevant that it's it's just uh, there's other bigger questions that need to be answered? Generally, what how do you feel about it right now?
1: Uh, kind of complicated. I mean, on one hand, I'd like to just start off by saying that I think that the lab leak uh, theory is entirely plausible. It Easily could have happened. I mean, obviously you have the presence of a, you know, of a Chinese lab there. Uh, China doesn't really have a good history with some of its lab procedures and all that. And, you know, certainly from the product safety side of it. So it is possible. And I think that is a theory that should not be dismissed. And I think that President Biden has done the responsible thing and ordered an intelligence uh, review of that. I don't think it's really going to lead anywhere, to be honest with you, because in order to actually have... You know, kind of definitive proof, you're going to have to have a lot more Chinese cooperation than what they're going to offer. So I think that ultimately, in the end, it's just going to to kind of lead nowhere. It's going to be one of the things that is going to be an unanswered question, I think, possibly quite forever. On the other hand, though, is that I often wonder about the relevance of it from the actual sense because. I don't need any convincing that China is a geopolitical rival, that they're untrustworthy in a lot of ways, and that they're a morally gray force on any number of topics. So if we were to find out that due to a lab leak and irresponsible safety, this thing actually had come out from them, I don't think my opinion is going to be changed one way or another. And certainly there's no accountability mechanism for here. So other than our own kind of like stupid political wars we fight amongst ourselves over this type of question – I'm just not really sure what the flash to bang on this is and if we're actually going to get anything out of it. And so that was kind of my point. Uh, I still, at this juncture, kind of lean more towards the animal transmission theory, just because, you know, the last two viruses that kind of originate out of China, and mostly viruses do kind of have kind of a zoonotic origin where they jump from animals to human beings. And looking at the history of SARS, it took several years before they can even identify where it came from in the first place and mirrors. I don't think they ever did eliminate. I don't think they ever got to where it came from. They had an intermediate animal that they think they know now. So the fact that it was not immediately known, I don't think is, you know, says one thing one way or another, because I think this is something that's going to take years to kind of suss out anyways, even in the best of times, but I still mean that way. But certainly I think that the rush to dismiss it out of hand, you know, Probably should not have happened, but I'm going to cede the floor because I do have a theory of why it happened, and i like to have a little
0: bit of back and forth first
1: before we actually get to that.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. I like it. Um, okay. Matt, uh, your thoughts?
2: You know, the Chinese and human rights, is uh, uh, they aren't the greatest human rights. Let's look over at the Uyghurs and, and what's happening uh, to the Uyghurs in the re-education camps right now. When you take that into consideration, and I do lean towards it may have been a a lab leak, uh, probably due to the to, to how they run safety, um, some of the research that they do allow in China that we don't allow in other places. Uh, we start to put these things together. A leak seems very plausible. Uh, the, don't get me wrong; the animal transmission sounds plausible too. The ability for us to get damages from China that people are talking about, maybe we, we could get damages, is not going to come. China is a rising power, if not the the preeminent rising power. Uh, I think the questions should be asked, actually, as we move forward, is not whether it was a lab that did this, but how much did China know and when did China know it? Because there hits a point, and to me, with this type of virus, and, and this is what I was trying to pull out of the debate we had within the writer's forum, I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theorist on did they release the lab as a weapon? But I do look at the fact that maybe once it was released, if you look at how they tried to control it and it had done economic damage to them, whether they saw this as a weapon to do economic damage to other countries, that I think is a lot more plausible than intentionally releasing a virus out to destroy the world. I think it's more plausible to say that there was a virus... That got unleashed. They figured out some somewhat how to control it, and they thought if we're going to take economic damage from this, then others are going to do it also. And they've, from that aspect, it's been very successful. On the last podcast that we had with you, I, I discussed India and how India has really fallen from one of the top GDPs in Asia, uh, the number two GDP in Asia, to one of the lowest GDPs in Asia. I think they've damaged a lot of countries. Uh, looking at the reactions that we've had including the United States which you know our inflation numbers this week are showing as long as we keep printing money to help people with covid uh, the more that inflation is rising and the deeper debt that we're going and that really plays to China's hand um whether China knew that or not you know is irrelevant it, it's it's working out that way
0: yeah and it seems to me that it, whether or not this was an intended, issue that china intended to steer things the way they did i think china certainly has made every effort to make sure that they don't receive the backlash of the cover-up and kind of what we talked about last time on this show when we talked about covid was that there seemed to be two things the crime and the cover-up a how did the virus get into the public and then b why didn't we know about this sooner and i think i i i I feel safe in saying I'm happy to be proven wrong. If if you guys feel differently, I think the cover up is pretty well established that China knew about this as early as October, November 2019, and ref- and even as late as December, they were saying there's no person to person transmission, and there were just consistent lies, consistent obfuscation, um, which we can all put under the umbrella of a cover up. To me, the issue of of the the crime, though, and I, I just want to throw this um, out to you again, Chris. I think there is a lot of relevance in understanding why this happened for multiple reasons. One, I mean, if there's some ludicrously mustache, twirlingly evil plot to do some sort of weaponization of a virus, okay, great. It would be important that we know that. But even on a more benign level, um, discussing whether or not gain-of-function research is a safe practice. Um, when gain of function research, we didn't talk about it last time that we discussed COVID, so I'll just briefly recap. But that is the act, the virology, uh, a practice in virology that's been controversial in the past about amplifying the uh, dangers of a virus in order to study how to defeat a virus. Um, and obviously, leaks are incredibly damaging with that. It was, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote something. I think the virology community in 2011 had a major issue when there was a uh, scientist in Rotterdam who had genetically altered the swine or the avian influenza, the, the bird flu, to make it transmissible among ferrets, which made it genetically closer to humans than mice would have been. And that was a classic gain of function amplification. And the scientist proudly declared that he'd made one of the most dangerous viruses you could make. Obviously, that didn't leak and it didn't escape. And, you know, presumably some research was done, but it was very controversial at the time. And the virology communities have those debates ever since. So I think, on a, as I say, on a more benign level, even a dis- understanding where this virus came from and um, understanding that there seem to be very good reasons why this would occur in nature, but the amplification and this specific strain, uh, may have occurred in a lab to do gain of function research, which now we also find out the U S help helped fund gain of function research. Again, it's not mustache twirlingly evil necessarily, but, um, But I do think that finding out those causes is incredibly important: a to prevent things in the future, and b to make those have those ethical, scientifically ethical discussions in public, so people can have a little bit of transparency on what's being done to protect them. No?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, though, we're we're arguing correlation and causation here. You know, in the sense that yes, Wuhan has this lab; yes, they do do gain of function research there. But on the same token, Wuhan is also a city that is much larger when you take in the extended Wuhan City than New York City itself with multiple wet markets. It's a regional crossroads. So all the conditions that, you know, that we basically are kind of saying could have led to a lab leak. Also the other theory about, hey, this is also quite easily could have been, you know, a natural phenomenon that it's occurred in their wet markets through, you know, large amounts of people with unsanitary conditions and wet marks. I mean, I think that that's easily as plausible as well. And so to the original point that we talked about where, yes, I think that an investigation is in order. Yes, we should take a look into it. And I do agree with you. It's important to kind of understand where this is coming from, if not for, you know, political reasons, certainly for scientific reasons, you know, it'd be very good to know. But on the other hand, I mean, I think some people have already got their minds made up about this, once again, kind of an extension of our political fight. And I think that we probably need to reserve judgment. Something Matt said a little bit earlier, though, I kind of wanted to address now, is Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we talk about the economic damage out there, and this was a thought that I had much later after our uh, Facebook discussion, was that everything that China does has an internal lens and an internal audience faced towards it. And I think that, as we talk about like, hey, this thing happened to them, and they did the cover up, I agree the cover up did occur. it's very It's very evident they suffered a lot more damage and a lot more deaths than what they reported out there to the media. However, I think that that was not directed towards us, and certainly the fact about economic damage and all that, I don't think it was directed towards us either. I think it was directed towards their very rest of very large population. Several years ago, I really kind of did a deep dive kind of into studying China. And obviously, you know, you have to do it from a distance because at the time, being a military, Gulf War, or OIF, wasn't doing a lot of traveling outside, professional traveling. But one thing that really struck me about China is that we have this image of China as being like this very cohesive, very lockstep kind of place based off of, you know, kind of our misunderstanding of what the CCP is and, you know, they're all on the same sheet of music. China is 1.4 billion people. It is huge in a way that Americans, I don't think, can understand unless they've actually been there and seen the people, seen the different regions, realize all the different ethnicities that they have, even within the own country and all the different cultural subgroupings. And China traditionally has been a very fragmented place throughout its history. And the times that it is strong is when they have been centralized. And if you're a Chinese decision maker, one thing that you realize deep in the marrow of your bones because you have thousands of years of history to back it up is that when the people start going different directions because they're restive, it snowballs quickly in Chinese history. And that's what it keeps showing over and over again. So I think that now that China has like a 300 million person strong middle class, uh, the fact that these wet markets are a little embarrassing, at least to a population of them out there, and the fact that they may have done this to themselves – I think if you're a Chinese leader, as this thing is starting to metastasize last fall and last winter, they're like, we got to cover up. Not because we want the Americans or show our ass to the rest of the world, but because we don't want those 300 million people on coastal China that have money and are keeping our regime afloat upset with us. You know, because it will break through the social media filters that they got. I mean, people talk. I mean they have a very robust internal debate within china itself and i think that was what was driving their action not any sort of nefarious mustache twirling plot or even a like hey let's see what happens with the rest of the world see if they can handle any better than we can i think really was an internal focus that they had at that point
0: that, that strikes me as incredibly believable. Um, I think Matt and I may have even discussed this. So Matt, you were on last time, that the only thing China fears more than its geopolitical enemies is its own people. And that the agreement, as I understand it, if following the Cultural Revolution and the rise of Mao Zedong, the, the essential social contract of China was, look, you give us your individual liberties. We, we will be an authoritarian regime. But in exchange, we will make you safe and we will make you prosperous we will have a middle class it's an amoral style of capitalism that will embrace commerce and that was kind of the agreement and i my again not an expert but my instinct chris is to agree with you 100% on that that i think the chinese government when they're welding citizens of wuhan into the building and trying to tamp down on the media and silence dissenting scientists and the the first the "Quote unquote patient zero just disappears um, when all those things start to happen." I to me that looks like a government that is terrified of its own people and and understands that it's not living up to its half of the social contract that they essentially have with their citizens. Matt, what do you think?
2: So um, first, I, I I totally agree. There is an an internal messaging here. You know, being in China and watching how they block off communication to the outside world, is it perfect? To Chris's point, it's not, but they do a they do a great amount of messaging internal. To your other point, I think China has reached a point where I wouldn't call them communist uh, at all. I'm more of an authoritarian capitalist, maybe. But the idea of, of communism when you see guys riding around in Ferraris and Lamborghinis in Guangzhou, uh, it's kind of left when you, when you see that type of power, money, and influence. Look at Jack Ma as, as a prime example of that. You know, One of the richest men in the world is in a quote-unquote communist country.
0: But also, but, but, sorry, sorry, Matt, let me yeah. just interrupt. Did you see that article recently about Chinese millionaires and billionaires and the, su- the suicides that happened among them that the death rate is – I forget what it was, but it's, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's like an astronomical death rate of anybody that achieves a certain degree of wealth in China. And I think that's – an inter- I don't know enough to comment more about it than that, but I thought that was an interesting statistic that showed there's a price to pay for being rich there too.
2: Well, it, if you want to look at it, a non-suicide rate, look at, at Ma recently yeah. um, and his hand slaps by the government. I mean that is – that is the most visible billionaire in China, and they have done what they can to knock him off his pedestal because it doesn't follow the totalitarian regime yeah. that they have. They, they want to maintain power. Chris has a good point there. But then there's the capitalistic side, and for the most part, I agree with you guys uh, that, um, that there is a totalitarian messaging inside, but the capitalistic side says there was damage done to my my country. And if you look, even after they knew Wuhan was a problem, this is the big point that, that makes me change a little bit. I'm not totally convinced on this. I'm not trying to throw out a huge conspiracy theory, but when you limit China, limit travel from Wuhan to other provinces in China, but you're still allowing international travel while COVID is ramping up and you kind of know what this is, uh, that leads me to think that at some point, you know, China should have cut the valve off to the outside world and they did not. And that's where the malice is there. And that's where someone can look at it from the outside, whether it's a correct, it's a conspiracy or the correct truth, look at that from the outside and said, look, China should have shut that off. And that's how these conspiracies grow. If it is a conspiracy, it's grown because of that type of information. If it's the truth, uh, there's a little bit of maliciousness in that. and, And that we need to be aware of because it has weakened competition in Asia. It's weakened competition from the West. And China has really come out of this, as far as I can see, a lot better than everyone else. Yeah. And it's not because of the totalitarian... Uh, it's not because of the totalitarian... I can't totalitarian. say the right now. I'm with you. Thank you. I, know. I got you. <laughs> Control. It, it, there, there's another edge to that that I think at least needs to be explored.
0: So my thought, and I want to throw this out to you, Chris, is that I think the number one kindling that lights a conspiracy theory is a lack of trust in institutions. The second people think that there are no trustworthy sources of information, or they can't trust in institutions that they're supposed to trust, then people will start to hypothesize on their own. I, I liken it to being a, a if, if you know the pilot doesn't know how to fly the plane, then even though you're sitting in row 19 E, you go, you know something, Hey, I'll take a crack at it. Cause clearly this guy doesn't know what he's doing. So to that end, when I look at both China and its attempts to tamp down the information flow, and then in our country, uh, and again, I'm referring specifically to the Vanity Fair article and, and the cases that she brought up in that piece, um, that's where I think then the crazy starts to filter in. And I'm going to go one step further and say this is also why I think very surgical thinking and precision in our allegations, our accusations, and our what we consider to be facts is crucial. To paint with broad brushstrokes all it does is incur more conspiracy theories because we, we're just invalidating, we're, even even if there's a kernel of truth behind it, um, we're invalidating so much nuance that we start to get into a whole communist, anti-communist, anti-anti-communist kind of uh, conundrum the way we had in the 1950s and 60s. So I throw that out there to you, Chris, uh, to do with as you see fit, but that's been my takeaway as far as the conspiracy theories go.
1: Okay. Well, I think I'm going to take this back a little bit, I mean, but first of all, I kind of want to say is that we can't ignore, at least within the context of the United States, I'm going to kind of shift the aperture to us for a minute as I kind of talk about it, is that, you know, we've gone through a long period of time where, at least in my perception, one side of the political equation has taken distrust as a, in government as an article of faith and promulgated that through its, you know, through its media outlets, You know, whether it be online, in print or whatever, to the point where it's actually kind of become something of an election platform that the government is ineffectual, the government is out to get you and only I can will be the one that tells you the truth. And I think, you know, when you have a decade plus of that messaging, you've kind of set the conditions where, you know, regardless of whether you believe in the competency of an organization or not, you really don't. So I think that it's impossible at least to have the discussion about the United States and conspiracy theories and about all that. But I'll kind of bring it up that point. But let's put that to the side for a second. And let's go back to the beginning of the COVID epidemic, because that is one thing that I think a lot that's being lost a lot in this conversation right now as we look back towards the beginning of it and start passing judgment about what people did and when they knew things and whatever, is that think back to that. February, March, April timeframe, when this all kind of metastasized and all kind of came at once. I don't think I heard about COVID for the first time till like maybe January. I heard about a little bit of something that was going on over in China, but it really wasn't about mid-February that really kind of entered into my consciousness that there was something out there that we needed to pay attention to. And the only reason that was even the case for me was that at the time I was working for a university that had some Chinese students and that kind of came out through that So I think, you know, given the information flows that we knew at the time and there was far more question marks than there were answers for anything. And I don't even really think until the summertime, we really even had a handle on what it was and what we should be doing. The public health guidance changed a lot. There was a travel ban then there wasn't a travel ban. Then there was a travel ban again. And I think that as we look back into it and we look at, you know, kind of some of the Fauci emails that kind of came out through that time frame. We start, you know, saying, Well, he knew this at this point. And I'm right, like,
0: right, right, right. and I'm kinda like, you know yep. what?
1: This when I read through the Fauci emails and I made the point of going through as much of it as possible, was that it seemed like he was a guy that had a bit more knowledge than everybody else based off his position and his professional training. But there was a lot that he didn't know and he was trying to figure out and going back in time, knowing what we know now about the virus. Yeah, sure, we can cast darts at a lot of it, but all the decision makers that were placed at the time were figuring it out at roughly the same time that we were, and I think that we put an unfair standard, an unfair burden on these guys when we start going back to saying, saying they were wrong, and that's a conspiracy theory right there because you know they didn't know the answer, right. and we're going back time. But then the second so, – yeah. So, it.
2: Chris, hindsight's Sorry. twenty twenty. I don't think there's anyone here that's going to disagree with you on that. Right. Um, the reason I think it's interesting to know where this came from is there's a larger world debate here, and it's not a conspiracy debate. It's a debate about some of the things that we're doing with genetics. Yeah. It's some of the things that we're doing about enhancing viruses. And a lot of this is being done in China, you know, and it, we need to step back and and question ourselves as Americans sending money over to do questionably ethical research. And we should, as a world, look, should we be doing things? It's like Nobel when he invented dynamite. The idea was great. The concept was good. He goes, I'm going to save all these lives of all these people blowing up tunnels. And all of a sudden they start blowing up each other. There is a law of unintended consequences when we make technology outpace our understanding of it. And I feel like right now, that technology and genetics and and our ability to change things genetically is outpacing our understanding of what we're doing. And yeah, we should pull back. That's that's the real discussion that we should be having if this came from a lab. I'm not a reparations guy or I'm not seeking money from China. In fact, I think it's an inflection as much as uh, uh, on the US to inflect. And it is something that we should be having a discussion even with China about ethically, should we all be doing these things? Should we let technology catch up?
0: That's a great point. And I think to that, um, and Chris, based off what you were saying, I I 100% agree with everything you just said. And I think it's important for us and for our discussion purposes to stipulate there are morons out there. And there are people that will paint with broad brushes and also stipulate that those initial, let's call it six months of government, of US government awareness, was a lot of teaching an elephant to tap dance. We had not faced anything like this before. I think a lot of mistakes were made for innocent reasons because we're we're unsure how to deal with this. This was a a very unprecedented event that we were having to deal with. So I'm I'm pretty, I'm very open to being gracious with people about and and giving a a period of grace to people to figure things out. I think where now when we go into the forensics and figure out how we got to where we are, what I specifically, and I should be clear about this, what I'm specifically referring to when I look at our loss of trust in institutions, the Vanity Fair piece, which has not only not been refuted, but now has unleashed a whole lot more reporting that's come out about this. I want to read just a couple of things just to indicate what we're talking about because I think this goes, and I also, let me just stipulate, this also goes beyond domestic politics. I I don't see a lot of this as a Republican Democrat idea. And I think those that want to look at it purely through that lens are missing a lot. Conspiracy theories, I mean, after 9-11, we had entire publications built simply on the idea that it was an inside job run by the Bush administration. Now we've got stuff saying that there's, you know, the vaccines are, going to magnetize you so that you can be tracked and all that. So crazy will do crazy, but keeping it in the realm of, of plausibility and, and what has actually been verified as best as we can tell. um, I just want to share this one quote from the vanity fair article. um, And I I think it'll help clear some things up. So, It was Christopher Park, the director of the State Department's biological policy staff in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, that pointed out that to say anything that would point to the U.S. government's own role in gain-of-function research needed to be hushed up. And that's according to documentation of the meeting obtained by Vanity Fair. Um, That had second and third order effects. There was Peter Daszak, the zoologist who helped organize a statement by The Lancet the prestigious medical uh, magazine that came out and specifically condemned any kind of lab leak theory as a conspiracy theory early on and seemingly before anyone would have any information as to whether it was valid or not. Well, it turns out that he was running EcoHealth Alliance, and they had just gotten a huge grant from the U.S. government um, to be doing gain-of-function research. So he had very much a vested interest. Then his emails came out. Again, this is all Vanity Fair, uh, hardly a a right-wing outlet. But that uh, Dazek was essentially, let's call it conspiring, for lack of a better word, with other scientists uh, saying there's no need for you to sign this statement calling the lab leak theory conspiracy theory. Uh, the direct quote is, you, me, and him, this is Daszak talking to other scientists, should not sign this statement so it has some distance from us and therefore doesn't work in a counterproductive way. We'll then put it out in a way that doesn't link it back to our collaboration so we maximize an independent voice. And one of the other scientists wrote back, said, yeah, otherwise it looks self-serving and we lose impact. All of that, again, with a lot of circumstantial evidence, doesn't make them Hitler. But what it does do is... is raised, I think, an alarming insight into our ability to censor based off of supposed expertise that we're doing it for, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, the best of reasons, but has stymied our attempts to do a forensic recounting of what exactly happened. And given how important that is, I think, and and again, I want to be specific me saying this does not mean every institution. It doesn't mean necessarily Fauci and, and every other person is this side of Hitler. But I do think the specificity is important because this, this to me was quite shocking. And I think it's the kind of thing that it's important to address and expunge. Otherwise, we, we do run the risk of people taking information into their own hands and realizing that they have to be, do their own information gathering because they can't trust anybody else.
1: Yeah, but I like the, I like to perhaps push back a little bit on that. Please. And the reason why is that, you know, I don't disagree with anything that you or Matt have basically talked about, about the investigative side of it. Uh, I'm passingly familiar with the, with the Vanity Fair article. I think I read large segments of quotes of it in other articles. And I think that the points that they bring up are all incredibly valid. But I just have a hard time separating it from – the larger discussion that is occurring, you know, in both our politics, domestic politics, and in our, you know... In our greater collective, you know, consciousness that this whole debate is occurring right at this particular moment is that if this was just a sterile debate about, hey, let's talk about gain of function research. Let's talk about where we should be doing it, whether we should be doing it only in our own government labs where so we can ensure that standards are being met. Because gain of function, I think I would have to divert a scientist on, but I'm sure there's a good reason why you would do it. You know, sure. you oh know, yeah, and all yeah. that, you know, for particular things. You know, sure. Or whether we should be turfing that off abroad to other countries, including China, you know, that have lesser standards of their own. I think that is an incredibly valid debate to be had. And I think that that is something that should be had within the professional circles and perhaps even within the halls of government. But that's not the debate that we're having as a country right now. Is that what we're talking about as a country right now is the lab leak theory has become kind of a proxy theory about... You know our whole distrust of media, our whole distrust mm-hmm. of government, and in my mind, a lot of it is about the sense of the past administration, and whether they were right or whether they were wrong, or whether you know every, they were, the media was unfair to them and didn't go along with the message, and that caused the, that caused the election to be lost in 2020. Yep. And the reason why yep. I think this is very very important that we separate those strains, and perhaps you know, be a lot more careful is that. One thing that certainly up here in New York that i become very aware of is that anti-Asian bias is on the rise. And I don't think these are disconnected issues. I think that the more we agitate against China, you know, whether rightfully or wrongly, we run the risk of fratricide within our own communities. And I think that there are certainly people that are willing to run with it. And as we see right now, hardly a day passes without some news report or some anti-Asian attack going on and out, out, going on out there in the country. and the more that we are not careful about separating those various strains, because I think that amongst us three we're mature enough, we are worldly worldly enough to actually have this conversation. I'm just not sure I tr- I'm not sure I trust the American public to have this conversation at this particular point. And I know that's a very anti-democratic thing to say.
0: No, no, no. But- I, I, I I, totally <laughs> agree. I'll, I'll simply respond by saying this. Look, I, I, I think, as I said before, crazy is going to do crazy. And I think the best we can do is simply say, you, to the extent we can say what we're not talking about, cool. But all we can say is, look, specifically to these issues, this is what we're saying. None of these are dog whistles for bigger issues. And I think that's when I talk about the the need for specificity and the urgency to um, not paint things with a broad brush, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That I think so many times people hear lab leak theory and they see a very direct link to justifying that Trump won the election, or January 6th was was righteous. And that, to me, is is huge leaps of assumption. Now, to me, I understand to others it may not be. All I can do is speak to the the specifics of what we're exactly talking about. So not detracting from what you're saying, because I think you're right. And this is – I resent – Not what you're saying, but I resent deeply that this country has become so solipsistic that we have to look at everything through an MSNBC, Fox News lens, and we don't have the ability to just look at an issue in a vacuum and say, well, hold on. In this case, this is specifically what we're talking about. The only other point I would make on the anti-Asian strain, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I would just say uh, that's been something I've watched a lot. I would – you and I, Chris, we'll have you back on, and we can do a full hour on the causes of that because I'm convinced that has more to do with defunding the police than it has to do with COVID. When you look at who exactly it is that's doing the attacks, the mentally ill people that are attacking Asian Americans in the inner city, that to me does not sound like Fox viewers that are necessarily going, aha, it's a lab leak, but – we can have that that debate later before we go too far afield, Matt. I wanted to throw it to you on one other thing though, on because um, you brought up what I think is the red herring here, or sorry, not the red herring, but is being obfuscated in a lot of respects, which is the DNA collection that yeah. China is engaged in, and what a that I think in years to come we will look back and do a face palm. When we realized what China has been busy engaged in, that and when we were allowing it to happen, I want to read this one um, piece that I saw just today in Insider Magazine. Insider had a uh, a report on Amazon's use of COVID testing kits, and so Amazon the the you know website. Uh, has been using COVID testing kits from BGI Genomics, which is a Chinese genome sequencing firm that U.S. intelligence officials have flagged as potentially sharing Americans' genetic information with Beijing. Now, this comes after ODNI, the um, Office of the Director of National, National Intelligence, said back in February, this is a direct quote, and I said this on the last COVID episode, but it's worth repeating, This is the direct quote. For years, the People's Republic of China has collected large healthcare data sets from the U.S. and nations around the globe through both legal and illegal means for purposes only it can control. While no one begrudges a nation conducting research to improve medical treatments, the PRC's mass collection of DNA at home has helped to carry out human rights abuses against domestic minority groups and support state surveillance. The PRC's collection of healthcare data from America poses equally serious risks not only to the privacy of Americans but also to the economic and national security of the US. So to me this is a huge piece because why is China gobbling up all these samples of DNA from across the world to what end? And again, not to make it not to make the COVID-19 outbreak into some huge larger conspiracy theory, but simply to say this might shed some light on future plans of China's to understand human DNA and if you can have the medicines available to treat people or God forbid, if you can have something that can specifically target certain people's DNA, uh, that's dicey stuff. The DNA collection piece, I-, I would be lying if I said that didn't worry me. Um, Matt, I think you had something you wanted to add there. So I don't want to cut you off. Go for no, it. No,
2: you're, you're good. I was uh, taking a couple notes. I want to take a step back on the vanity fair. I do want to talk about the the gathering of, of DNA data, but you know, I think this the twenty-four hour news cycle and the mixture of news and political commentary, whether it's Fox, MSNBC, or any of these news sources, has so distorted what is fact and what is is a political opinion that people these days are confused. I think if we really wanted and, and this is where I give Vanity Fair a lot of credit. This was real reporting. It's been a long time on something like this where I've seen real honest reporting that that was as non-biased. And it didn't mix in this was Trump, this was you know Biden, yep. this was here, this was there. This was just a, a sliced view to Chris's point of some things that they saw. I think news has to go back back to that and and maybe change how we do the 24-hour news cycle so that we're not looking for for the latest conspiracy or the latest political crap that's coming down at us that we really look and do some investigative news what dist- what disturbs me the most In our society, as we have moved away from investigation, we've moved to flash news. And when things change, we get confused. And this has happened throughout COVID. We get confused about what is fact versus, and and when facts change, people are confused that those facts have changed because the media doesn't do a good job of communicating that change. As for collecting the DNA, uh, you know, it is something that we may go back and, and, and do a facepalm. It, 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 in some ways, reeks of, of racial supremacy looking or racial targeting, which they've done. Um, that would be a scary fact as, as we move into the future, and probably way long after us, on what they are using it for. Uh, if it targets specific genes, maybe for gene editing to, let's say, uh, prevent sickle cell anemia—that would be amazing. I don't see that type of research ever coming out of China, though. So it, it's very questionable what we're going to end up seeing come out of of the DNA collecting that they're that they're doing. On the other hand, we have a lot of private corporations. Twenty three and Me would be a great example yeah. that's doing a lot of DNA co- collecting. And lo and behold, the the federal government and and law enforcement is using some of that collecting. Uh, to to go find relatives of murderers, for instance, and connecting people to murders. So you know it, we should again have some have some discussion about what's truly private in our own society, as much as we should talk about what's going over to China.
0: And, and life's complicated. Two things can be true at once. Something can be incredibly dangerous, and it can also have some. Beneficial effects. And that kind of nuance, I think, is frequently lost when we look at it through the left right binary. Uh, Chris, sorry, I cut you off, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that, you know, just to piggyback onto it, I mean, this is a larger issue than just China, whether DNA collection is just that. Mm -hmm. You know, the appetite amongst corporations, amongst governments, amongst even private citizens for big data is ferocious out there. And this is something which I think is more of Matt's bailiwick because he's more of a tech professional than I am. I'm not a tech professional at all. But the reality is, is this, that every single day, we're emitting information out there into the world that someone is collecting on us and putting into a repository somewhere. And certainly from some of my own work that I've done you know, on the government side, I mean, the government collects. It's all out there. And if you put it out there, I mean, unless you were a hermit in the woods, and even then I'm not entirely sure that you're safe. You know, the information's out there, and we as a people don't fight against that uh, because it represents convenience and represents the modern society. I'm a little bit of a futurist. I'm a big sci-fi fan, and I like really getting into the speculative stuff. And there is entire, you know, book series really seriously, really competently written in the sci-fi realm about what societies will look like 20 30 40 years from now Mm -hmm. and if we want to basically speculate about it we don't really have to speculate about we are pretty much sacrificing privacy you know for convenience in a lot of cases and that is going to have effects because where we might trust mcdonald's to have our data so that you know we can have our sandwich ready as soon as we go through the drive-through i mean that data can be used for other people and repurposed for other things and i think with china I don't necessarily think that it's a nefarious, you know, they want to gene edit us out of existence kind of, you know, thing. I think actually their ability to collect data is more of a surveillance counter espionage thing that, you know, we can, you know, get better handle upon our people and we can better protect ourselves from foreign threats and foreign infiltrators. I mean, that's a recurring theme you see throughout Chinese history and Chinese, you know, political messaging eternal. I think that is, you know, more along the lines of what they do. Or they just might be collecting it just to have it. I mean, who knows when it might become useful sometime in the future. And I think that our own government does the same thing too, is that, you know, hey, let's collect it. And If it never is useful, then, hey, you know, it never is. But maybe we can find a use for it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know enough about it to speak with any kind of authority. My my sense, and I was looking here while you are talking, Chris, to see if I could find anything Um in my notes, and I I have something in there, but I can't find it, but about uh, the U.S. when we backed off uh, collecting biodata for um, specifically bioweapon research that we were trying to do. And China, I think it was in 2000 that a book came out from the former head of the Soviet bioweapons program. And he said said that the, the Russians had found the Chinese still doing bioweapons research, even after they'd said that they weren't going to, all of which, doesn't necessarily mean anything about covid 19 or or anything about anything but i do think that's an interesting data point um to take into consideration that when we're dealing with an authoritarian regime that has such a distinct lack of transparency um, god only knows uh, you know what they're intending to do and i think that's the biggest fear with china is the lack of accountability and the lack of transparency when we're dealing with something that it, we saw with covid god only knows what that means when it's something more malevolent
1: Right. I mean, I think there's also a flip side of it. I mean, let's put our China hats on for a second. Let's put ourselves in the the role of Chinese decision makers. What is the incentive for them to be more transparent? I mean, we've already kind of talked a little bit earlier about the whole bias towards internal stability and the fact that when they let off on internal stability is when they lose control and they get invaded by outsiders and they have revolutions and civil wars. But- You know, in so much as we review them as our adversary, they view us as our, as their adversary. I think they also view Russia as an adversary, although one that they can find common cause with in some issues. They certainly sure. believe Japan is an adversary. Uh, they see, I think they see everybody as adversaries, to be quite honest with you, or marks to be taken advantage of. But when you're surrounded by adversaries, what is the incentive to be transparent to the world? You know, right now... Could they let you know the WHO in there and go open kimono on everything that they have? I guess. But what's the positive about that? Because if the WHO finds that it was a lab leak theory, now they're discredited. If they find that, you know, if WHO finds that there is nothing there, well, it's not going to convince a certain segment of our own population anyways. And there's still going to be, you know is still always going to be out there that they were responsible for this and this came from their country. So therefore, they're at fault. So if you're a Chinese decision maker, don't even risk it. Don't even let them in in the first place.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's the danger of authoritarianism, right? Is that there's no accountability. Oh, Because you could similarly say, what's our incentive to be transparent? And our incentive is that the people demand it, whether it's because of political parties or what have you, but we let the world in. And as a result, we do have to hold ourselves accountable. When you refuse to do that, then you've just kind of changed the game and you can stonewall as long as you're able to financially support yourself, which China is.
2: Chris, uh, the the other piece of this is is it works in the u.s interest right now as authoritarian as uh, China is the the last thing we'd want to see is a China collapse because of the distrust so it, it doesn't work in our interest to go back and and change the narrative either. Uh, I think that's part of the danger here. Um, I took a note and I can't read my own notes this morning. this is me. Uh, this is me getting old. I I got it. So I have a friend of mine. I, I took a note on this. I have a friend of mine who came I've got a number of them, but one in particular, we had a lot of discussions about Tiananmen Square because he was in Tiananmen Square and he was put in a factory for a number of years. And when he finally made his way out of China, came to the United States, very bright guy. But even when he came to the U.S., He saw the need, especially in China, for very strong government. He did not leave China Mm -hmm. because of lack of strong government. He was a firm believer. What he wanted was more freedom of speech, more human rights, and that's what they were marching for. But even a lot of the Chinese citizens that left, that were part of of that uprising, still believed in a very strong central government uh, because of, of Chris's reason. In fact, he pointed that out. That if you look at the foundation of the republic, when it formed, he said it was too weak. It couldn't control China. So even the Chinese uh, citizen realizes that there there needs to be a strong central government to control that many people.
0: So I'm going to ask, as I seem to do every week, I'm going to ask you guys each a very unfair question since we're already at uh, almost an hour-ish on this. Chris, what do we do about China? Uh, Now, I'm going to give a a bunch of options, and which you can either use to think of an answer or take one of the ones I'm going to throw out here. These are some of the popular things that are kind of being tossed around among, um, I think, more knowledgeable people, but I think they're interesting as a starting point. So there's some that say, well, we need to engage Taiwan more. There's some that say we need to engage Japan more and build Japan up and, and let it go and let it become the uh, the strongman of the Pacific Rim again. There are some that say, well, look, let's just do some PR stuff initially. Let's just boycott the Olympics. Let's not give uh, give uh, China the platform and, and give them more international goodwill. There's some people that have said, hey, there should be a border tax on carbon content of Chinese exports. Let's just hit them economically a little bit. Uh, that's appealing to both environmentalists and to China hawks. One of the pieces that we haven't even gotten into yet was, is China is by far the biggest environmental offender on the planet, yet no one ever seems to boycott China or protest China or do anything about them. So maybe a border attacks on carbon content might be a way to go. Or is there something else? Again, an unfair question, but what do you think?
1: I think that my viewing on China is that they may be stuck in the middle power trap and that they will grow old before they grow powerful. Now, just for our viewers, for our listeners, the middle power trap is this theory that's out there. It's been called a couple different things out there. But the middle power trap is that to get from a developing country to a fairly coherent, you know, even economically robust middle power is actually not that hard. I mean, you build up your education, you, you, know, you invest in key industry in some ways, you take advantage of your natural resources responsibly, you can actually get the middle power status pretty quickly. But to ascend to great power status, there is a lot more that goes into it. And in some cases, it's accident of history. In some cases, it's a massive advantage that you might have in one particular area or whatever. But the thing is that China has a lot of problems that are facing it. I mean, one, you know, it just came out this past week about how they're changing the uh, two child policy. I think it is
0: now. They're pretty much saying that's out. Trying to do a three child policy? Yeah. They need to get more people. And And the
1: reality is that, you know, they have a huge demographic bulge and a large amount of their population is going to be old to the point where they're not gonna be able to support it and maintain the same level of economic output that they actually have to have in order to access all these, you know, rural peasants into the middle class. They're gonna run out of people and run out of, you know, internal power to actually do that because of that demographic bulge alone. Uh, they are a highly inefficient economy in the sense of, you know, a lot of their state, you know, planned industries have just kept on building capacity that they do not use and represents a sunk resource. Uh, On the innovative side of the house, they are getting better at that, you know, but at the same token, they're not the innovators of the world. Other countries are. And even when they do come into like some pretty good technologies, usually through a brute force application method, than it is necessarily through any sort of brilliance on their part. And what I tend to think is that they are going to run out of steam, probably in about the next decade or so. And in that case, they're going to become very dangerous for a period of time because at some point they're going to recognize that, hey, look, we have a number of problems that we have to deal with. And if we want to keep expanding, you know we're going to have to be a lot more aggressive than what they are. And I think there's going to be a period of time when there is the potential for great power conflict between us and them. And we're going to have to manage that by being bigger and stronger than them. And I don't think we do that by basically making ourselves stronger. I think we do that through the multilateral alliances that we have out there. Because and this is the thing that I don't think a lot of Americans really want to hear, particularly folks that are like all America first and all, is that we're not powerful enough to take China by ourselves. You know, we might be able to fight like a sea air war beyond the first island chain. We might be able to do something about that there. But if China wants to dominate their neighborhood, there's not a lot we can do by ourselves to prevent that. The only way we basically contain them on the world stage is through building our alliances with Japan, Australia, India, Europe. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of boxing them in. And that's where I think the last four years in a lot of ways was a lost opportunity, was that multilateralism is going to be what we're going to need to do in order to, you know, in order to contain them through that dangerous period of time that I think is going to be the next 10 years or so. And once they're past that. Then I'm a big proponent of engagement because the way you basically make China, you know, less dangerous is by so integrating them into the world economy and so integrating them into the community of nations that the cost for them to act outside of that is too great. And I'm going to be honest with you. I advocate the same solution for Cuba. I advocate the same solution for Iran is that maybe the counterintuitive way is to embrace them and bring them into the fold. However, I don't think China is going to be ready for that for at least a decade or so because I think they're going to have to rise, then start to you know kind of hover there in the middle, and then start to have mm-hmm. those problems overtake them before I think that you know culturally, psychologically, whatever they're going to be ready for that kind of outreach.
0: So it sounds like we're going to call you George Keenan the second, and this is containment too, right? This is the new containment policy. Yep, is that essentially what we're talking about? Okay. Contain, I, I, interesting.
1: Contain them and eventually embrace
0: them. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting, Matt. What do you think?
2: So first, I, I think Chris is right in the stance that uh, wars are not won by individual countries, especially modern war. If you look at the Cold War, for instance, uh, it was it was the conglomeration of NATO. Yes, the the U.S. led the way. But there were a lot of allies that did their part to make sure that we didn't fire a nuclear missile or, or go right. to war with Russia during right. that time. Same thing in World War One and World War Two. Uh, nobody won alone. One of the strengths well, of the hey, United- let me just hit,
0: sorry to interrupt Matt, but I mean, hey, we needed a coalition of the willing to go into Iraq. Because I mean, you know, we don't do anything alone. That's right.
2: One one of the One of the powers that the United States has always had is the ability to work with other countries to build coalitions to do things. And I think uh, that's what we have to get back to. Um, I'm not sure China is going to to burn itself out. I do see structural change happening in China. I see uh, Chinese moving out of China to places like Malaysia or Cambodia, Um, I do see information, as as hard as that government tries to keep it out, continue to seep in. If you you go look at IP that's created outside, it still seeps inside of China. And a great example of that are apps for your phones Mm -hmm. uh, that you can't get outside of China. The Chinese, man, have everything on their phone that I have on mine. It's just not government-sanctioned. So information will continue to bleed in. There's not a way to stop it. And continuing to open up like that... Is important, but the other thing to realize, China has a few billion people, and China is working on building coalitions. Also, they're making investments in Africa. They're making investments in South America, uh, and some of these have backfired on them. If you look at Chile. Uh, and giving the COVID virus the COVID vaccine to to Chile, uh, Chile thought this was a great deal until people started coming <laughs> down with COVID.
0: Didn't work, um, right, right? Yeah,
2: so so China is kind of in in its own way, uh, its own set of allies because of the sheer population. So we need to have a delicate hand uh, in a lot of cases, but but we need to be honest with them in many cases too. So. It, there's a balancing act I think we will have um, over the next few decades with dealing with China. And I, I do believe that having strong allies, uh, whether it's it's Japan, especially India and um, uh, in, in Singapore uh, controlling shipping lanes in the South China Sea, uh, Australia, uh, the Philippines, um, those are going to be strong allies there. But from a trade reach, we should also look at our own investments in in countries in a positive way, like in Africa or mm-hmm. like our own brethren in South America, where you know they're building huge um, stadiums, like in Costa Rica, to to gain goodwill. So there, there's definitely a balancing act here, but a coalition is definitely needed. However, we proceed.
0: So. I'll end I think our China piece on this just because I I spent a decent amount of time diving into it because I'm confused about it. The environment. So China it depends who you look at, but generally speaking, China uh, is not only by far the worst polluter and, and and the most environmentally damaging country on the globe, but it's number one by at least a hundred percent. More than number two, if you consider number two, India, or if you consider it the U.S., it, it, it more than doubles whatever offenses India or the U.S. has. Why hasn't that caught fire? Why isn't that more of a driving impetus in the global conversation? That, to me, would be something that could unite. I mean, if you're going to look at it through an American political lens, it would unite the left and the right. But if you're looking at it in a geopolitical uh, lens, it unites second world, third world, first world concerns. Uh, it, it seems like that's something that people could rally around and demand better from China. Why hasn't that happened? Chris, again, an unfair question, but what do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, actually not a couple of years ago, last year, I ended up reading a little bit more about this topic. And what's very interesting is that there are certain countries that are doing some incredibly innovative things on the environmental front. And strangely enough, China is one of them. You know, they have a, obviously they have like a huge addiction to coal because there's all sorts of coal in China. and That's still their primary, you know, source of power. But in some of the other fields of sustainability, they actually are fairly advanced, you know, out there. So I think that that is one thing that can't be lost in the conversation. But this is a subject that, I think gets very touchy very quickly because we start getting into a lot of like the, you know, the whole colonialism total argument of, you know, Hey, countries that are, have already made it and spent hundreds of years abusing their natural resources that are now starting to lecture countries that came after mm-hmm. them that, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, how dare you pollute the environment? We're like, well, what did you do for the last 200 years? You know? Right. So I think that that conversation gets very, very touchy, very, very quickly. But, if we are really concerned about the Chinese, you know, environmental problem, then some of the solutions that's gonna to take to fix that might be politically unpalatable because one of the things that would have to be on the table would be technology transfers, which is always a dicey subject when you talk about with China. But like, you know, you know, solar power, which the Chinese are a proponent of, but you know, wind power, uh, battery technology, which is one of those things that not does not get a lot of press out there. But, you know, that's the frontier of renewables that are out there. That is something that, you know, there's an arms race going on out there about who can build the better battery for vehicles. Uh, Some of the power technology, even some of the nuclear stuff. I mean, I think nuclear power is going to eventually make something of a comeback as well. You know, because I think so it's going to kind of have to it's going to kind of have to be
0: it has to. You know, and so
1: what I think is that. You know, those are going to kind of be the things that if we are serious about helping China address that environmental thing as a world community, that those are the type of conversations that are going to have to take place. And I think right now they're very difficult to take place just because of the back and forth between the countries some of the historical context with that. I don't know if it really answered the question that you posed to me so much as, you know, made you know, it more you, complex, but.
0: No, but, but that's what it needs. I mean, th- there's clearly not a simple answer for this. I, I, I guess if I had to boil down my my question to the, the most glib possible formation, it would be, when are we going to see Greta Thunberg go to China? Um, you know, it's one thing to lecture, you know, Scandinavia, Europe, and the US, but China's our number, the number one target. So I, I, I would think that that could be a unifying battle cry across the whole political spectrum um, to get behind. But I mean, Chris, you did a great job of yeah. bringing out the nuances involved in that.
1: But I'll be, but I'll add one more additional complication. When's Greta Thurmer going to go to India? When is she going go, to? <laughs> when is she, she going to go to Egypt? Uh, when's she totally. going to totally. go to Turkey or Iraq? I mean. I spent eighteen totally. months. I spent eighteen months on a deployment next to the Northern Oil Company in uh, Northern Iraq. You know, being doused with like yellow sulfur dunes every day, blowing that stuff into our face, where we all had walking ammonia out of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I think that there is, and I think one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is that it feels a little gratuitous in some ways. Being from one of the comfortable first world countries, mm-hmm. lecturing a country that can't even feed its own citizens. You know, yep. like it's said, yep. hey, you can't have this power because it's bad for you and it's bad for the environment. You know, so that conversation writ large has to happen in the world community about, hey, there's going to have to be some technology transferred, not just to China, but to everybody. And it's not going to be we're going to sell it to you. It might have to be it's going to be gifted to you, you know, for the betterment and the good of all humanity and mankind. And until we're ready to have that level of discussion and have that level of openness and that level of you know, hey, we may have to go down some of those you know, roads of solutions rather than having the same stupid debates we have about climate change, about whether it's real or not, or where how much of it is really man-made or not. I think at this point, that's irrelevant. What is relevant is that if we want to address those other things, it's not just China.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how much we would have to gift. I mean, I think the difference would be China's China is a first world power Now, it certainly has a lot of poverty. It's got 1.4 billion people. I mean, there's going to be an awful lot of um, issues, uh, population-driven issues in that country. That said, they certainly have the infrastructure to be able to do more environmentally friendly practices um, without anyone in the international community's help. Uh, but I think, I think when you're an authoritarian regime, you are kind of impervious to shame. And that's something that the West is – we are nothing if not – happy to be shamed. So um, we're, we're more prone maybe to it. Matt, what do you think?
2: couple things. Um, first, I, I think uh, we probably have a, a couple Eagle Scouts on here if, if it serves me well, but we learn, you learn Boy Scouts to be a good steward of your environment. It's not about climate change. It's not about whether things are getting hotter or colder. It's just about leaving things at least as good as you went into them. And uh, internally, the U.S. has to always be introspective on this. You can't go knock on someone else's door till you've knocked on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some painful decisions that need to be made here. Going to China, going to India, looking at some of these other uh, places around the world, It we're here. We became first world. India is still struggling with coal. Um, uh, India as a standards country uh, is kind of scary when they're developing something like nuclear energy because the the level of standards just aren't there uh, that, that they are in the U.S. and in Europe. You know, if you look at France, France, what, 60, 70 percent is uh, maybe even higher because I'm doing this off of uh, just my mind right now is nuclear energy. Yep. Yep. The last time the U.S. built a nuclear reactor uh, was years ago, the, the most recent, we just fired up a program and realized we have no internal knowledge yeah. anymore. We had to bring in Japanese to teach us how to build nuclear reactors again. Uh, and it's it, the price tag has gone through the roof because we don't have the knowledge in Georgia. So uh, we had to clean some of our house. Um. again, we need to look at things like the Paris Peace Accords. I was not for them because it didn't hold anyone to anything. Let's let's get real, people. There are no teeth. You want to hold some standards. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to take teeth as an American if the the Chinese and, and the Indians and other countries are willing to actually put teeth, not voluntary pledges. And that was my fundamental problem with the Paris Accords was that this was something where everyone made a pledge. And of course, we're going to try to do our best to live up to it, but there was no bite for China or India or Iraq or any other country um, that's struggling with power consumption and with pollution on on uh, making them a better place to live
0: Yeah, uh, environmentally. Largely symbolic. Um, I wish we could do more, guys. Uh, I've held you guys for uh, the whole hour and um, man- There's so much more to talk about. We we got to barely scratch the surface of what we want to do. I think that was a great talk, though, and I really appreciate it. That um, yeah, it's complex, and I think to double back to what Chris had brought up earlier. um, Good on us because I think two things can be true at once. I think the things we're talking about have so much nuance that that needs to be fully developed. And it can't just be looked at in, the, in, this, in, in what Americans so often these days like to look at things through, which is just that simple domestic binary lens. And um, so good on us, guys. That was fun.
2: So Chris, one, one more thing here is, is if you look at the three of us, I, I know um, where my political leanings are not the same as Christopher Otero's. We have spent an hour on a phone call. Uh, or an hour on a a podcast talking about things and agreeing for the most part on a lot of things on guys on two different sides of the political spectrum this is why we need to change how we talk in america and what we're talking about and and take the politics out and talk about the real problems and you'll find a lot of americans are more on the same page than what our political elite think they are
0: yeah you just can't monetize it nuance is tough to monetize (laughs) yeah that's right um Okay, uh, Matt, talk to me about Hope for Today.
2: Uh, Hope for Today is a a ministerial organization that works throughout Asia. One of the big things that they do, uh, especially in places like India, Cambodia, uh, um, uh oh, Bangladesh, is they bring uh, not only church into these people's lives, but really what they bring is is a hope for change. They teach jobs. They teach women how to sew. They get children fed. They bring to villages soy machines to convert uh, soy beans to soy milk, so children have the proper nutrition. They run multiple orphanages, and I've been to a lot of these orphanages while I've been in India, to take kids who have become orphans, give them a home, and give them an education, which um, Chris, from the last podcast, you know I'm really, really big on uh, education as being a way out of poverty, and these guys take a big hand in educating some of these kids that would just be lost otherwise.
0: Yeah, and that's a huge thing. I know you talked about them last time, and um, I went to the website. It, it's it's incredible work to, to look at. I wanted to also give a shout out to – was it home, Homeless homelessness? Pets homeless homeless pets. pets
2: found. Yeah. Uh, it was started by Dr. Michael good in Atlanta. He's opened up homeless pets clubs around the United States. And what they do is they, they find these pets that need to be adopted. They help kids to start adoption programs. He also runs an underground railroad for pets that are in, uh, in States where they're going to permit euthanization and moves those pets to owners in other States. Uh, through funds that are, are donated to uh to homeless pets and to the homeless pets underground uh it's a he's a really really solid um veterinarian and he is probably uh one of the most passionate people that i've ever met about a cause Unfortunately, Mike just passed away, and one of his wishes. Uh, after he passed away, was that um, people come and give to any type of Homeless Pets Foundation and help these pets find homes.
0: So did his foundation, did it die with him or is it still continuing?
2: Amazingly, his son has come in and his son became a vet because of his dad. And they've worked in practice together, I'd say the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, Mike was our first vet. This guy, when Hurricane Andrew hit, there was a dog that got trapped under a car. It made the national news. Someone got the dog out of the car. He had flown to Atlanta, performed a double amputation, and created wow. a special harness for the dog so that the dog could get around and live a happy life. And adopted the dog back out to uh, to a family. This is the type of work that Mike did, uh, hands down. He's got a he's got a whole network of people. That contribute to the Homeless Pets Foundation. He was just the uh, the cornerstone of it, but it is still going on. It's still being run. His son is stepping up and stepping into this role, and uh, it's a great it's a great That's way to, to to get get some uh, homes for pets that don't have them.
0: Yeah. Well, we will have the web address then in the show notes, so everyone can check that out. Chris, I don't want to blow you up, but um, i I'm, I'm sure our listening audience is dying to know any updates you can give us. On your firefighting career
1: yeah i got the uh, phone call the other day that you know i was approved for entry into the local volunteer firefighter department there's a couple weeks of administrative requirements that you have to do in order to get on it Uh, i'm actually not going to go to the firefighter training in to the fall looks like but in the meantime one thing that that they're talking to me about is that you know you get into the department immediately because there's a ton of activities that occur in and around sites that you don't necessarily have to be firefighting trained. Right. I mean, it ranges right. from directing traffic to sweeping up the glass that's on the road out of traffic accident sites. There is a thousand and one things that actually have to happen. And then, there, of course, there's some OJT that goes on, you know, for the department. So by the end of the month, I'll be in uniform, and it will be something I'll do a couple nights a week, and I'm looking forward to it. But just to reiterate from the lab, if you didn't hear the last episode, uh, volunteer firefighting is something that is, you know, not widely understood by the population out there because most people when they think firefighting, they think of the professional firefighters that are out there. And but they're only about thirty percent of the departments that are out there in part of the country. Seventy percent of firefighters are volunteers that do it one, two, three nights a week, maybe one day on the weekend, they respond to the calls. And for the most part, it's uncompensated work. I mean, there are some benefits and there's sort of some tax stuff you might be able to get from it, but no one does it for those things. And they do it as part of, you know, to be part of the community. And one thing, this is a personal bias of mine, is that I think that Americans have lost their sense, their civic selves, I think, you know, their attachment to their local communities. And I think we've become so kind of, you know, staying in our houses and glued to our phones and, you know, not willing to put skin into the game that I think that things like volunteer fire departments, rotary clubs, uh some of the church organizations that are out there i mean those civic participation things i think made this country great and i think the fact that you know not so many not a lot of people get involved in those things is kind of a bad sign so you know for me i looked at you know i got out of the army i had been not done anything for the last two years and for me i was like it's time to get back into the game if i'm gonna pontificate on my post and in my blogs and on podcast about, you know, the civic health of the country. Well, God darn gosh darn it, get in there and you yeah. know, take part, yeah. put some civic skin in the game. So you know it's a,
0: it. it's a great point. And I, I know we keep circling back to Chris what you brought out before about you know how everything seems to devolve into a a national political binary. And I I, I couldn't agree more. I think This country is funky. We have local governments. We have – we're federalists. We've got these crazy individual communities that can be totally different from each other, and that's the beauty of the country, that we're not all creating the same societies or we we don't uh, aspire to create all the same societies. And one of the worst things, I think, of our political polarization is that everybody picks one of two teams, and now everything has to line up based off some federal – Level um, political formation that is just not germane to most people's day to day experience. And getting involved in your local uh, community and finding opportunities to actually contribute to others outside of politics and certainly outside of anything that has to do with national exposure and national level issues, I, I think is incredibly healthy. And and I couldn't agree more. I think that's missing right. because we got to be able to. We gotta be able to like the people that were around and help the people that were around. And I I think we're probably all in agreement that a couple days a week of volunteer firefighting goes a hell of a lot further than four hundred hours a month of tweeting and, you know, blogging and even God forbid podcasting. Right. Well, so also to yeah. keep
1: also to keep it on rant for Havoc Journal, I mean, you know, we are a veteran focused kind of organization. Um you know, a lot of veterans out there are just adrift. I mean, they leave the service yeah. whether they spent four years or they spent twenty years in. They get out there and they're looking for their place into the world and where they fit in. And it's not it's not I'm not even gonna go into the whole adventure junkie thing, but just you know, rejoined up because something in us wanted to belong to something for whatever reason. And I think that something like volunteer firefighting, getting involved into your, you know, civic, you know, kind of greater thing out there is a good substitute for what we lost when we left.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Listen, Matt, Chris, thank you guys both for being here. Absolute pleasure.
2: Thanks, Chris.
1: Thanks, Chris. Yep. Thanks, gentlemen. It was great.
0: So to everyone else, uh, subscribe if you haven't already. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review is always welcome. The show notes, we will have plenty of them. We referenced a lot of different topics uh, a lot of different aspects of the China piece uh, a lot of a, little, a lot of homework for me to do to go through and find all the show notes that we have to reference but they will be there wherever you're listening to this podcast scroll down and you will see the show notes or you can find them at the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com or you can find them in my accompanying article on havoc journal which was posted on Tuesday, the day that this podcast episode is released. So please check those out. We'll also have alibis for anything that generally I misstated or misremembered or needed more context or what have you. Um, Offer always is extended to our guests as well, but generally I'm the only one that uh, brain farts or misstates things to the point that I have to write something up to cover my ass after. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Matt Trevathan and Christopher Otero, and we will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Anybody have anything else, any other housekeeping that we need to do beforehand?
2: No, I hadn't heard Chris's voice, I mean, personally in years, so... Hey Chris, on a housekeeping mystery, you're looking good, Hi. brother. How you doing, Bud? I'm I'm here. We've survived another uh, another 20 years on this planet, so indeed.